God, we're grateful for that. We're also mindful, God, of the responsibility that it gives us to exercise those freedoms for the sake of global evangelization. You have blessed us, God, not only with the freedom to say whatever we want, but the wealth to say it anywhere we want. And so, God, we thank you doubly today for our freedom here in America. We're grateful, God. We're really, truly grateful. More than that, we feel the weight of responsibility today, Jesus, to proclaim your greatness to a listening world. Pray, God, that you'd speak through me to your people today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. A couple things to make you aware of before we uh, get rolling. Uh, today is uh, another opportunity you have to grab your yellow bag on the way out for the chip-in for Chapelwood uh, event. We've got that coming up. There's a list stapled. You don't have to get everything, but if you could uh, help out the, our partnership with uh, Chapelwood Elementary School just down the street it is a significant strategic partnership for us. Also, one thing to make you aware of, we don't have a, a slide for this, but just want to let you know, uh, this year, uh, in about a month, is the uh, second annual uh, Flapjacks 5K. Uh, that is an event that benefits the B&O Trail, which runs, as you all know, just along the edge of our uh, property here. Uh, and so they're doing this again, and uh, we, we need some volunteers. Last year, Chapel Rock provided, um, I don't know, 12 or 13 volunteers to help, just kind of stand there and help the, the runners or walkers uh, navigate their way around uh, Ben Davis. And so we're going to do that again. There's something on our website. If you'll go to our website, which was just kind of redone this week, it's really cool. You ought to check it out. Uh, there's a place where you on the events page, chapelrock.org slash events, and you can sign up to help. Uh, there's also a, a link that you can copy and paste if you decide you want, like me, are going to run uh, in that uh, or walk or, you know, crawl, depending on the humidity, uh, you know, whatever. <laughs> so uh, I want to encourage you to, uh, to check that out today. Let me ask you a question. Do you know how hard of a hit you could take? Now, admittedly, it probably, we would all have to answer, well, it depends on who's doing the hitting <laughs> and where they're hitting me. And are they using just their hand or are they get, do they get to use a weapon? And most importantly, do I get to have some kind of armor to protect myself? One of my favorite movies is a movie called A Knight's Tale. Uh, it's a modern adaptation of Geoffrey Chaucer's story of the knight in his classic work, Canterbury Tales. In the movie, William, played by the late Heath Ledger, is a squire who takes on the false identity of a noble-born knight so that he can change his stars, live a different life. Along the way, he develops a team of people who can help him, and one of those people is a female blacksmith who boasts that she can make him a suit of armor that's far better than anything else he's ever used. He invites her to uh, live up to that challenge, and then we see this. Watch. What? Uh, I don't know. It's, it's too small. It's too light. He'll be crushed. Killed. No. I found a new way to heat the steel. It's thinner, smaller. 
but just as strong. What are these? The marks of my trade. Should another knight admire the armour. <laughs> <laughs> Twist and bend. Feel the movement. Well, I... But eventually, I will be struck. And then death. Do you at least have the courage to test it? Are you all right, Will? I didn't feel a thing. <laughs> I love that. They're all mocking him in his new light, fancy armor, and he just hops right up on the horse, uh, and then they all just shut up. I love that. The doctrine that we're going to talk about today has probably caused the church to take more hits than any other. We're going to be talking about the doctrine of the Trinity. I want to thank you for being here today. If it's your first time here at Chapel Rock or if you've just been coming for a few weeks, I would love to meet you. Uh, when we're all, down, we're all done, uh, I'll be right down front. And if you're new and just kind of been around, I'd love to just greet you personally. Thank you for being here. Uh, if you're joining us online, thanks for logging in. Uh, I know we have some watching from uh, lakes and various uh, recreational facilities all over the Midwest. So, hey, we're glad you're here. Uh, if you're local, we'd love to have you on site. We're starting a new sermon series today called Armored. And over the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about how to defend your faith with passion and precision. We live in a world that is becoming more and more hostile to the caricature of Christianity that you see in pop culture. But our world is also becoming much more open to the real thing. It's this weird dichotomy where the caricature as Christians are sometimes portrayed in the media, people are shutting that off. But if you're really like Jesus, well, then they want to hang around you. They want to get to know you. They want to know what you believe. And so we have an opportunity here to speak into that. We need to, be, we need to understand our faith, but we also need to be able to defend, to articulate it well. If you've got your Bibles today, open them to page 1. It might be page two, I don't know. Uh, we're going to start in Genesis 1, 26 today. That's where we're going to begin, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. We're going to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity and how we can uh, defend that. The, 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 I think the best, best and briefest definition of the Trinity uh, comes from Lewis Berry Chafer's book, Systematic Theology, where he writes this. The Trinity is composed of three united persons without separate existence so completely united as to be one God. The divine nature subsists in three distinctions, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's from page 276. In other words, God is one in regard to his essence or nature, the, the stuff that makes him God, but he is three in regard to his persons. We call this doctrine the, the Trinity. Sometimes you'll see the, the word the Godhead, uh, or the triune Godhead, they all mean the same thing. And this belief in God as triune is the foundation of the Christian faith. L listen, if this is not true, none of Christianity is. This, this has to be true. <laughs> Here's the big idea this morning. 
We have to get better at explaining the how and the why of the doctrine of the Trinity so that people can be in relationship with the only God who saves. Only God can save. Right? Thank you. Just want to make sure you're tracking with me. Only God can save. (laughs) And if you are trusting in Jesus for your salvation, then you must believe that he is God. Because only God can save. And if Jesus is not God, then Jesus cannot save. And if Jesus cannot save, you are still in your sins and destined for hell. See, this is not just an academic thing. This is not just something that the theologians talk about. This belief drives world mission. This belief drives our evangelistic impulse. People's salvations, people's eternities are on the line when it comes to this belief. See, in order for the Christian faith to work, God must be triune, which is good because that's his nature. It's his essence. And we need to be able to defend this admittedly hard to understand belief to an unbelieving world so that they do not dismiss our faith out of hand simply because we're not very good at explaining it. We need to get better at explaining what we believe. (laughs) Not coincidentally, we probably should also get better at living what we believe. So we're going to talk about that in this series. Um, In order to to help us get our heads around this, each week is going to follow the same format. My outline for the next uh, four out of five weeks is not going to change. It's the same thing every week, okay? It's the same structure for each one of these messages. It goes like this. Here's what's true. Here's why it matters. Here's what to do about it. Here's how. Okay, we're going to follow that same structure every week. Now, two weeks from today, Dr. Jay Weil, uh, a a nuclear chemist, is going to be here to talk about defending creation. Guest speaker, you will not want to miss that. You'll want to. I've had a chance to see some of his uh, graphics and and some of the information he's going to be presenting. He's not going to follow my fancy little structure. That's okay. He's way smarter than me. Um, uh, (laughs) Apart from having just DR in front of his name, he's just beside that way smarter than me. So. Uh, I want to encourage you to plan on being here on the 16th. Uh, you will not want to miss that. You will walk out of here so psyched, so jazzed about our creator God, you're not going to be able to shut up. You'll be all over Facebook all day. You won't believe what I learned. Um, so it, it's, it's great. But So here's what we're going to do. It's here's what's true. Here's why it matters. Here's what to do about it. Here's how. Okay? Here's what's true. Number one, the Trinity is biblical. Now, the word Trinity is never used in the Bible But the triune nature of God is clearly seen all over it. The doctrine of the Trinity is that there's one God whose very essence exists, that he exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, I will tell you that if we were to take the time to look at every single passage in the Bible that speaks to this issue of our triune God and and really study that text, I'm I'm not exaggerating, we would be here the rest of the day. I'm not going to do it. Relax. You'll beat the Baptist to the restaurant for lunch. Just chill. <laughs> but there's a lot. It's all over the place, y'all. It's, it's, it's all through the text. We don't have time even to look at a tenth of the most significant passages. All we're going to do is look at a few that I think really rise to the top and really speak to this in a very, very powerful way. 
So I want to focus our attention today on, on a few that I think matter the most. Let's look at this passage in Genesis 1.26. Look at this. Then God said, let, what? Us. Make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air, over the livestock and all the wild animals and all over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now in this passage, God is speaking, presumably to himself, because there ain't nobody else around to listen yet, and he uses the plural, us. Who's he talking to? This assumes that God has relationship within himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. In Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and without shape, and the Spirit of God hovered over the water, and God said. So at the beginning, you have Father, God. You have the Spirit who's hovering over the waters. You have God speaking the Word, the Lagos, John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Even In the very first two verses of Genesis, you've got the Trinity. Not only that, but over and over again in the Hebrew language of the Old Testament, which repeatedly affirms the oneness of God, the plural form of the Hebrew word for God, Elohim, is used. Whenever you see a Hebrew word, if, it, if it's got I am on the end of it, that usually means it's plural. There are probably some exceptions to that, but generally speaking, when you see I am on the end of a Hebrew word, it means it's plural. The Elohim, it's, it's the plural form of God, and that's the word that's used to reference God over and over and over again. So it's this idea that that there's one God in three persons. Let's look at another Old Testament passage. This is, I think, the most important passage that teaches the oneness of God. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In this passage from Deuteronomy, it's known as the Shema. The oneness of God is directly stated, but the triunity of God is indirectly affirmed. Here's what I mean. There are two Hebrew words translated one in the Old Testament, okay? The first of those words is the Hebrew word yachid, and it means one, and this is a philosophical term, a monad, okay? It's indivisible. To to divide it in any way, shape, or form fundamentally breaks it. It no longer exists as it is, okay? It's a language from philosophy. Uh, So there's this word yachid. That's one Hebrew word for the word that we translate one, all right? That's not the word used in Deuteronomy 6.4. Let me say that again. That's not the word Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we'll talk about that next week, that's not the word he chose to use. The word he chose to use is the Hebrew word echad, which means one, a union, a unity in community. So even in the great Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is echad, one but it's a union in community. (laughs) That concept perfectly expresses the doctrine of the Trinity. So when Jesus says in John 10.30, I and the Father are one, his Jewish disciples (laughs) would have heard that and known exactly what he meant. He is making this idea, this this claim that gets bantered around that Jesus of Nazareth never claimed to be God. I learned a technical word for that in Bible college. 
baloney. He did too. See, his disciples, and by the way, in the Greek of John 10.30, the word translated one is the same word that's in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 6.4. And his Jewish disciples, who have had the Shema pounded into their head every day of their lives, would not have missed that connection. So when Jesus tells his disciples in John 14, 26, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. You've got to set that alongside what Jesus says one chapter later in John 15, 26, when he says, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. The Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father. He will testify about me. So who sends the Spirit, the Father or the Son? Answer, yes. <laughs> see, when Jesus tells his disciples these things, you see him teaching them the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. <laughs> so you're sitting there going, well, should I believe in the Trinity? Jesus did. Ought to be enough for us. Jesus clearly believed in the Trinity. If you're trusting him for your salvation, if you want to experience the Holy Spirit, you need to believe it too. You see, not only is it biblical, it's also rational. So when we're talking about what's true, the second part of this is that the Trinity is rational. Now, let me be clear. The doctrine of the Trinity cannot be proven by human reason alone. It's only known to us because it's revealed by God in his word, in scripture. That's the only way we can know this. You can't observe it from nature. However, just because it's beyond reason's ability to prove does not mean that it goes against reason. It is not irrational or contradictory as, as some have falsely claimed. Let's talk about the logic of the Trinity, all right? I'm going to get a little technical on you here. Just hang with me for a little bit. It'll be over soon. It's like ripping off a Band-Aid, okay? Just hang with me. I want to talk to you about the philosophical law of non-contradiction, okay? Here's the philosophical law of non-contradiction. Something cannot be both true and false at the same time and in the same sense, Philosophical law of non-contradiction. Something cannot be both true and false at the same time and in the same sense. It's the fundamental law of all rational thought. And the doctrine of the Trinity does not violate this law. And it can be shown by stating, first of all, what the Trinity is not. Okay, The Trinity is not the belief that God is three persons and only one person at the same time and in the same sense. That's not what it is. That would be a contradiction. Rather, it is the belief that there are three persons eternally coexisting in one nature. Now, this may, it's a mystery, but it's not a contradiction. It's hard to wrap our heads around, but it does not violate the fundamental laws of reason. The Trinity goes beyond reason's ability to understand it completely, but it does not go against reason's ability to perceive it consistently. The doctrine of the Trinity is not that there are three natures in one nature or three essences in one essence. That would be a contradiction. Rather, Christians affirm that there are three persons in one essence. And it's not contradictory because it makes a distinction between personhood and essence or nature. To use the language of the law of non-contradiction, while God is one and three at the same time, he is not one and three in the same 
sense. He is one in regard to his divinity, his nature. He is three in regard to his persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. There's no violation of reason or the law of non-contradiction in the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay, band-aid is pulled, okay? I know I might have lost some of you there. Philosophical stuff maybe isn't just your thing. Y'all come back, all right, because we're going to talk about why this matters. All right, we're gonna talk, well, here, here's why this matters. Uh, there are a lot of reasons why. I want to give you the most important ones, what I, at least what I think are the most important ones. Here, here's the, the first and most important reason why this matters. Bad analogies equal bad theologies. Bad analogies equal bad theologies. This matters because bad analogies, I believe, do more harm than they do good. They lead to bad theology. There's a legend that St. Patrick of Ireland used the shamrock to try to explain the Trinity. Is it three leaves or is it one leaf? Well, it's one and three. Bad analogy. Good historians will tell you that almost certainly never happened. There's no reference to it anywhere in anything that Patrick ever said or wrote. But I found a video that had some fun with the idea, and it shows us how bad analogies lead to bad theologies. By the way, the video is somewhat satirical. It's got a bit of an edge to it, so, you know... Let's exercise some grace together today. Uh, but it, I, it, it made me laugh. Um, and bad analogies hurt the witness and mission of the church. Watch this. Okay, Patrick, tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. Yeah, Patrick, tell us. But remember that we're simple people without your fancy education and books and learning, and we're hearing about all of this for the first time. So try to keep it simple, okay, Patrick? Yeah, real simple, Patrick. Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Not picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, the Trinity is like uh, water and how you can find water in three different forms. Liquid and ice and vapor. That's modalism, Patrick! What? Modalism, an ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 at the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the Church Catholic. Come on, Patrick! Yeah, get it together, Patrick! Okay, uh, then the Trinity is like uh, the sun in the sky, where you have the star and the light and the heat. Oh, Patrick. Come on, Patrick. That's Arianism, Patrick. Arianism? Yes, Arianism, Patrick. A theology which states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and not one in nature with him. Exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself, but are merely creations of the star. That's a bad analogy, Patrick. You're the worst, Patrick. All right, sorry. The Trinity is like uh, this three-leaf clover here. I'm going to stop you right there, Patrick. <laughs> yeah, hold your horses, Patrick. You're about to confess partialism. Partialism? Yes, partialism. A heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God, each composing one-third of the divine. And who confesses the heresy of partialism? The first season of the cartoon program Voltron, where five <laughs> robot lion cars merge together to form one giant robot samurai, obviously. 
I've never heard of Voltron. <laughs> of course you haven't. It's not going to exist for another 1,500 years now, Patrick. Yeah, get with the program, Patrick. I mean, really, Patrick. I'm going to stab you in the face, Patrick. <laughs> okay, that was probably a bit much. All right, I'll try again. Uh, the Trinity is like how the same man can be a husband and a father and an employer. Modalism again. All right, then it's like the three layers of an apple. Partialism revisited. Fine. The Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Well, why didn't you just say that, Patrick? Yeah, quit beating around the bush, Patrick. Now let's all put on some giant green foam hats, get riotously drunk, and vomit in the Chicago River to celebrate our conversion. <laughs> Simple, right? Piece of cake, all right? <laughs> That's easy. No, bad analogies lead to bad theologies, okay? Here's the second reason why this matters. It unites your Bible. The simple fact is your Bible doesn't make sense if the doctrine of the Trinity isn't true. The one that Jesus identifies as the Father is clearly shown to be the Lord God of the Old Testament. When God tells Moses what to say to Pharaoh in Exodus 4.22, we read, Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. He's identifying himself as a father there. Later, in the time of the monarchy, the relationship between God and the king is described in, in similar language. In 2 Samuel 7, 14, God says, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. The Psalms echo this language. In Psalm 2, 7, God states, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, this is later applied to Jesus, but in its original context, it was applied to Israel. When Jesus spoke to his disciples about the father, they all knew that he meant God. When he said the Father, they didn't, it's not like Peter shot his hand up, whoa, wait, excuse me, who? They all knew exactly what he was talking about. They knew that, that, it was, that God was perceived as Father in the Old Testament. So when you read this Trinitarian formula in the New Testament, like in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, He's effectively equating the three there. <laughs> Remember, they're only God can save. And so all three are brought together and called God in that moment. Again, this connection with baptism. And then when we read in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You need to realize that the only way that that makes sense with the Old Testament is if God is triune. They understood the Father to be God Almighty, Yahweh, in the Old Testament. And the only way your Bible makes sense together, Old and New Testament, is if this doctrine is true. This matters. This matters because, as Dr. Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, has pointed out, the way you visualize God in and of himself actually impacts, for better or worse, the way you act, the way you think about other things, and who you are as a person. And that immediately raises the question, so what do we do about this? I think there are a couple things. Here's the first thing. We need to explain this better. 
So when we talk about what do we do, we need to explain it better. Muslim history tells us that when Muhammad, the founder of Islam, was a boy, somewhere between 9 and 12 years old, the accounts differ, he encountered a Nestorian monk. It's one of the guys that the two little Irish dudes were talking about. Nestorians were a group of heretics who believed that Jesus had uh, two natures that were completely separate from one another. That he had a human nature and a divine nature, totally separate, not integrated in, in one as a person. They're kind of ideological cousins to the Arians who believe that Jesus was God the Son, but that God the Son and God the Spirit were created beings, that God the Father created them in space and time, which is essentially what Mormons believe. Both Nestorianism and Arianism were floating around Arabia in Muhammad's time, 650, 700 years after Jesus. And my point is, when the man who would become the prophet Muhammad was a young boy, he encountered people who couldn't explain the Trinity. As a young man, Muhammad was impressed with Christians. That, that not, that's not Christian history, that's Muslim history. He was impressed. But repulsed by the, one, the way that the ones he met tried to explain God. And I believe to a large extent that Islam exists because a monk didn't understand his own faith and explained it poorly to an impressionable young boy. It's history. we got to get better at explaining this because somebody's eternity, maybe billions of people's eternity, might be at stake. Okay? The second reason, the second thing we need to do about this is we've got to live this doctrine. If we live out the doctrine of the Trinity, it unites our lives. See, one of the key teachings of the doctrine of the Trinity is that the three persons of the Godhead are equal in authority, but they have distinct relationships with each other. That God the Son, who's now incarnate as the man Jesus, has willingly and eternally been in submission to God the Father. That, that, that has always described their relationship. There was never a time that God was not, and there was never a time that the Son was not in submission to the Father. As we have seen, the Father sends the Spirit to us, the Son sends the Spirit to us. The Spirit is also fully God. And when you live this doctrine, your life is lived in submission to the Father because of the Son's death and resurrection for you by the power of the Spirit in you. Let me put it this way. The Spirit gives us the power by the eternal life of the Son to live in submission to the Father. When you live this doctrine, it unites your life. Thomas Akempis wrote, What good does it do to speak learnedly about the Trinity if lacking humility you displease the Trinity? Indeed, it is not learning that makes a man holy and just, but a virtuous life that makes him pleasing to God. So how do we do that? Well, that's the fourth element that we're going to talk about today. Let's talk about how to do this. Let me give you three practical ways to defend the Trinity in your life. Number one, quit using bad analogies. Just stop. That's the Bob Newhart approach to counseling. Just stop it. Just, just stop. <laughs> just, don't, just don't do it. All right? We try to explain this, and when we do it poorly, it does more harm than good. Well, the Trinity is like uh, water, ice, and steam. No, it's not. Well, the Trinity is like uh, an egg where there's a shell and a yolk and a white. No, it's not. Just stop using the bad analogies, all right? The closest thing I've seen 
If you need something, the closest thing I've seen, it's not perfect, but it's really close, is, is mathematically. What do you get when you multiply one times one times one? That's adding. If you add them, you get three. If you multiply them one times one times one, one. That comes the closest of anything I've seen, but it's not perfect because you're talking about the same number. They're not different. They're not distinct. It's not one times two times three. It's one times one times one, and it's the same thing. Even though they're three different ones, it's the, it's doesn't, it just, it's close, but it just doesn't quite cut it. The, the, the point is we've got to quit using bad analogies. Don't try to il- illustrate this because nothing really does. Let me tell you a story. Dorothy Sayers tells the story of a Japanese convert struggling to grasp Christian theology. He had a children's Bible that had pictures in it. And they had a, they, there was a picture on one page of a glorified older man. And, and there was a picture next to him of a glorified younger man. And then a picture of a shining white dove. And so this convert is opening, has this children's Bible, and he's pointing, he says, honorable, points to the old man, honorable father, very good. And he points to the young man and says, honorable son, very good. And then he points to the dove and he says, honorable bird? I do not understand. (laughs) Okay, it's it's this idea that, I mean, I wouldn't get it either if I was new to this. Let's just agree to quit using bad analogies and instead use the language of Scripture itself. God is one in regard to his essence, his divinity. He is three in regard to his persons. It's a mystery. And that's okay. Okay. We'll talk more about Scripture next week. Here's the second thing that we need to do. We need to use our gifts. We talked about this a little bit last week. I wanted to come back and hit it again because I think it's so important. Because the doctrine of the Trinity is true, then the power of the Father God Almighty lives in you through the grace of Jesus. That's His gift given to you, which is powered by the Spirit who lives in you if you're a Christian. And every time the world sees you using your gifts... It testifies to our triune God. See, the author of the book, In His Steps, uh, Dr. Charles Sheldon, uh, it was the, it's the origin of the What Would Jesus Do movement, wrote this. After we have asked the Spirit to tell us what Jesus would do and have received an answer to it, we are to act regardless of the results to ourselves. In other words, if you believe in the Trinity, as you should, and you pray to the Father... In the name of Jesus, in other words, through him, and you receive, a Holy, receive an answer from the Holy Spirit in your soul, you should act on that answer just the same as if you'd seen fire and lightning in the sky. Let me take this a step further. Because this, this has happened to me, I'm confessing, probably happened to you. You're sitting in an intersection. There's a homeless person there, and you've got some food in your car. And you kind of feel that Holy Spirit nudge to go, you know, you probably don't need that extra box of granola bars. Just roll down the window and hand it out. Am I bugging you yet? Because it's bothered me. And it's so easy, it's so tempting to dismiss that and go, well, you know, it's just... uh..." Would it change your experience if all of a sudden the sky darkened and lightning lit it up in flashes and if you heard a voice from heaven go, Bob, give the homeless guy your granola. Mary, you don't need the third bag of apples. You'd start chucking food out the window at light speed, man. Here, just take it all. Just 
What happened? God spoke to me in traffic. Listen, if you believe the doctrine of the Trinity, that nudge in your heart from the Holy Spirit is the same thing as fire in the sky. That's why this matters. That's what we do about it. This changes the way we obey God. That still small voice, that quiet nudge in your heart where the Holy Spirit just kind of pushes you out past the edge of what you're comfortable, <laughs> that's Almighty God telling you what to do. Now it needs to gel with Scripture. One more thing. You need to get baptized if you haven't done that yet. We, we referenced before the Great Commission. Be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Here's the most amazing thing about this belief. When God the Son became the man, Jesus of Nazareth, and added to his divine nature a human nature in a mystery that we don't totally understand, listen to me, he effectively trapped himself in human form for all eternity because he loves you. Do you understand how much God loves you? John just read the verse earlier. Philippians 2, who, the, the Son of God, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He emptied himself. He gave away all the prerogatives, all the privileges of divinity, and took on human form. He trapped himself in a human body forever because he loves you. He took on your body so he could take on your son, your sin, so that you could be like him. And if you're here today and you've never taken that step to acknowledge Christ as Lord and be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit living in you, Acts 2.38, what are you waiting for? See, only God can save. And He has offered Himself to you. See, when you put the time in to learn this, you'll be able to move as nimbly through a conversation as William did in his new armor. Did you hear me today? We have to get better at explaining the how and the why of this doctrine of the Trinity so that people can be in relationship with the only one who saves. Maybe you're here today and that's you. You need to be baptized. You need to identify with and participate in the death and resurrection of Jesus. You need to be adopted by the Father, forgiven by the Son, and empowered by the Spirit. If that's you, in a moment, we're going to stand together and sing. It's your opportunity to respond, to come forward and say, yes, I believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. I want him in my life. I want to follow him. I want to give him my life. You have that opportunity today. Maybe you're here and you still have some questions. You want to talk to a leader. Under the yellow awning is our next step room. I would encourage you, even as we sing, to go there. There are people in there ready to talk to you. Maybe you have another need and, and just need someone to pray with you. I, it might not have anything to do with what we talked about today, but God is moving in your heart to have someone pray with and for you over something. We've got, we'll have decision counselors down front who are ready. Would you stand with me as we respond to the word of God together today? And let's sing.